Hey, I'm David Crabtree, lead pastor at Calvary Church. Welcome to our podcast. I hope you'll find something every week that inspires you to dig deeply into God's Word and reach for the unmet potentials that lie within you. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and never miss an update. Hope you enjoy the message. This sermon series is called Enough, and we're talking about God's provision for our need, living in a place where we sense contentment rather than always longing for our ship to come in, to where we can rest in full confidence that God indeed will supply all of our need according to his riches and glory. The message series is just touching on this whole idea of having enough. Any place you find enough in the scripture, I'm planning on going there over the next six or eight weeks. If it lasts that long, it may be four weeks. You know the way these things work. So I want to talk to you today about abounding. Abounding. What comes to mind when you think of the word abounding? Bounding? Abounding? Throw out a word that, that pops to mind with abounding. Abounding, okay. <laughs> Somewhat a different word. Grace? Running over? Abundance? How about enough? More than enough. Now we're cooking. I want to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8, a verse that many of you will be somewhat familiar with, but most of us do not read in its context. We'll also be looking at Philippians chapter 4 to a verse that we are all very, very familiar with, but we rarely read it in its context. And the context is really going to open up for us the pathway of living with this deep, settled sense of enough. Our text is taken from 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8. Paul says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you will abound in every good work. Do you see how often the concept of absolute fullness is held within that verse? Read it aloud with me. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency at all times, in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Father, add your blessing to this word, I pray. Help us, O God. Help us to grasp the context and the concept that Paul so faithfully reveals. He gives us a glimpse into who you are and how you work within us. Help us to grasp it today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to fill in a blank for me. There's just not enough blank in the world. Love. Everybody goes right there. What the, you hear Burt Backrack's old song, those of you who are over 100. 
You hear, <laughs> you know, this crew's gone burnt and back rack. Okay, what the world needs now is love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. Okay, you are all over 100 years old. Okay. Thursday, I went looking for consensus on how you fill in or how is the culture we should fill in that blank. There's just not enough. And I found as I began to scroll, with the help of Google, went out and began to scroll through all kinds of papers and all kinds of uh, articles that have been written on this idea of enough. And I found that generally they revolve around, in our culture, not enough love, not enough time, not enough friends, not enough food. I think that about 99% of us are doing okay this morning, but I'll throw it out there anyway. Not enough energy, anyone? Just not enough, not enough energy, not enough sleep, not enough sleep. Some live as though life were cursed with pandemic scarcity. Within the sound of my voice, I know there are people in the room this morning that you live your life with a frustration that whatever it is you feel you need the most of or you need more of, there never seems to be enough. Never enough. The culture, our culture, lives with a sense of scarcity. We really do, and it's, it's an irony, really, because we just keep filling up all the landfills and we're maxing out our storage space. We say we don't have enough, and yet we're paying for storage space. One in 11 Americans pays for space to store the material overflow of the American dream, and yet they live as though they don't yet have enough. That's $92 a month on average to pay for storage. Think of the irony of this. People live with a sense of, I don't have enough. And part of the reason you don't have enough money is because you're paying it to store the stuff. I don't have enough, but I need storage space. Think of that for a moment. If you don't see the contradiction, then you're gonna struggle with the entire message today. There are more than 50,000 now, 50,000, 1,000 in every state, actually, works out a number of different ways, but more than 50,000 storage facilities, these big box storage facilities in the United States. It has now become, our stuff has now become a $38 billion industry that is three times the budget of Hollywood. Three times Hollywood just to store our stuff. What an irony that we don't have enough Storage, enough storage. I love you, I'm your pastor. You can throw me out if you want. 95% of the people in this building don't need storage. We have enough. And I could tell, in that moment I could tell, some of you are mad at me and you wanna leave, but I'm trusting you'll stay. Paul's great promise of all sufficiency seems completely out of touch with our times. Paul says, all sufficiency, all things, all times, you're gonna abound in every good work. We read that and go, uh, nah. Perhaps, perhaps the word of God is not so much 
out of touch with the culture as we are out of touch with truth. We have to understand context when we're studying the scripture. Let me just put it this way. If you take, if you take something that someone says in a sentence and you pull that alone and you stick that up on social media someplace, depending on what it is, it can really shape people's perception of that person who spoke or wrote whatever it was, if it's not in context. Politics is the study of perverting context. They said this, it's not what they meant, but they said it, and so gotcha. Context is important. In the scripture, the way that we understand context is when you're reading, for instance, when you're reading the letters of Paul, first you understand that this is a letter. Secondly, you understand who it's to. You want to know who it's to so you can understand kind of what was going on among the people that it was sent to because often the context is going to, if you understand what they were going through, then you really understand what Paul was saying. But particularly in paragraphs in the scripture, if you, if you look at the, the divisions in paragraphs, sometimes we'll pull one text out and it becomes the thing that we say and we quote all of the time, but we lose track of the context, the verses that were previous to it that help us understand the text in its proper context. This is common and, and, and I've really built the message around this idea that we've lost the context for the abundant life that God has called us to. And when we don't have the context, we're always throwing around the scripture as a pretext. And then we're frustrated in our lives when it doesn't seem to be working. What's the context of Paul's writing to the Corinthians and especially the ninth chapter? Let me give it to you. The entire ninth chapter of Corinthians is Paul responding to the Corinthian church concerning the gift they are preparing to give to the church in Jerusalem. The whole context of God's sufficiency, all sufficiency, all things, all times, all places, you're gonna abound in every good work, that whole promise is tied to the context of a church that has been challenged to give. Check it out, can't get away from it. And to not read it in context is to abuse the scripture. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church to encourage them because the Jerusalem church has come under stiff persecution. The Jews in Jerusalem, when the church was first launched, the, first, the church exploded. It flourished for a short season of time, and then the Jews began to clamp down on, they considered the Christians to be a sect of Judaism. And as the Christians began to get stronger and stronger and stronger, the Jews began to bring the hammer down and try and, and pressure them and shut them down. And so within about 15 years of the church really being established in Jerusalem after the day of Pentecost, within a short period of time, the church in Jerusalem came under massive persecution to the point where people within those churches were affected economically and poverty in that early church began to be a problem. Paul knew of the trouble that they were having in the church in Jerusalem and so Paul's thought was this, and it was, it was born of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to reach out, he says, to all of the churches in Asia. 
I'm going to jump across the Aegean Sea to Macedonia. I'm going to reach out to our churches in Macedonia. And then I'm going to reach down the peninsula into modern day Greece. We know in Paul's day it was called Achaia. I'm going to reach down into Achaia and I'm going to send letters there and I'm going to go there also. I'm going to tell my churches in Asia and I'm going to tell my churches in Macedonia and in Achaia, I'm coming through. I'm sending some of the guys through to places that I can't get to. Receive an offering. Receive the best offering that you can for our brothers who are struggling in Jerusalem. We're going to come through. We're going to collect all of this. And then we're going to get it to Jerusalem where it's going to bring relief to the saints. The entire ninth chapter of 2 Corinthians, you can basically close the chapter up and not look at it anymore if you don't understand that context. And you will abuse this verse. You'll say, well, the scripture just seems to say, God said, I'm making all grace abound to you. You're always going to have sufficiency in everything. At all times, you're going to abound in every good work. If you don't understand the context, you will treat this as though it's somewhat of a blank, a blank check for Christians. So understand context. Paul's promise of God's unbounded favor is made against the backdrop of participation. This is a text. This is a promise for givers. Apart from this context, the text is corrupted. Let me put it another way. If you expect this promise, you need to live within its context. You need to. Our core text does not say God has written now a blank check to everyone the moment they become a Christian, God just says, anything you need, just fill out the check. If you ever run into people who that's kind of their theology, because God says he just wants to bless his people, that's all he wants to do. Forget obedience, forget repentance, forget uh, walking with the Lord in, you know, in, in faithful covenant. That's that, all of, Jesus covers all of that. You just, God just wants to bless you. Indeed, he does want to bless you, and he shows you in the scripture how to walk in blessing. But unless you look at context, you'll end up with a pretext that will bring you to a point of deception. Four dimensions that we need to look at this morning, understanding enough and understanding God's boundless favor. First of all, let's just look at the prospect, the prospect of boundless divine favor. It's right there in the eighth verse, the first part of it. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. What do you believe about the ability of God? What does your faith say about the ability of God? Paul starts off four words, say them with me. And God is able. Huh. Do you believe God is able? God is able. You're not gonna be able to live a life of faith if you don't believe that God is able. The Christian must have an unshakable faith in God's overarching ability beyond the possible, beyond life's mysteries, well into that realm called impossible. I love the old chorus that goes back to the Keswick days in the 1800s. The church used to sing, have you got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. How many of you believe that God specializes in the impossible? He does. He does. 
So we have to understand that God is able, he's able to go beyond the possible, he's able to go beyond the things that are shrouded in mystery that we don't understand, he's able to go deep into impossibility, and that's called miraculous power, by the way, he is able. Throughout the Bible, you find this theme of the ability of God, and we have to grapple with it. Three Hebrew children went into the fiery furnace. Do you know that Pastor Phil did not know I was preaching this as part of the message today at all? It never came up in, destruc- in, in destruction, in our, our, our meetings, our production, anything like Never even came up that he was going to close with, there's another in the fire. He took us right to Daniel in all of this and the three Hebrew children in the fire, another one standing there with them. There were three Hebrew children who went into the fiery furnace in Daniel 3. They stepped back out. You'll remember they stepped back out without any damage whatsoever. And here was their testimony to Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar was saying, you either bow down before me or I'll throw you into the fire. They say, know this, our God is able. To deliver us. I love that. But they went a step further. They said, but if not, he's able, but if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow to you. Our God is able. When Daniel is thrown a little bit later, Daniel 8, he's thrown into the lion's den. Nebuchadnezzar throws him in the lion's den when Nebuchadnezzar is conned by by some of the people who he had empowered around him. And Daniel takes the brunt of it. He's thrown into the lion's den. Nebuchadnezzar can't sleep. He gets up the next morning. He rushes out to where the lion's den is. They pull the stone off the top and he gazes down inside and he shouts, Daniel, is your God able to deliver you from the lions? Is God able? John the Baptist was confronting the very cynical Pharisees who followed him around in his day. They were talking about children of Abraham, and John the Baptist said, almost off the cuff, but it's so powerful, he said, listen, boys, I've got to tell you. He didn't say it in those same words. That's David's translation. Bottom line is, he said, God is able to raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. In other words, you guys really think you're something. You need to understand God's able to take, we come from dust. God's able to raise up sons of Abraham from these stones right here. The ability of God, we find it everywhere in the scripture. The book of Hebrews tells us that God is able both to, and we sing it a lot here at Calvary, both to rescue and save. Abraham believed God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. If you've ever looked at the Abraham-Isaac story and said, that's the most horrible story in the entire Old Testament, and I cannot believe that God would ask Abraham to offer up his son, but the scripture gives us this insight. Abraham had a pure faith in God that says, if God leads me to the place where I thrust a dagger into my own son, I believe in a God who will raise him from the dead. He is able to do that. And then faith is the abs- in the absolute ability of God becomes the theme in Paul's writing, and especially in Romans. In 421 Romans, Paul speaks of Abraham being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. In Romans 16 and 15, now to him who is able, Paul says, as he's closing out his great letter to the Romans, now to God who is able to strengthen, to strengthen you. 
So looking now at our text in 2 Corinthians, see what Paul so clearly and boldly declares. God is able to make all grace, that's divine favor, to make all grace abound to you. I love that word abound, it's a verb. Abound. God is able to make all grace abound to you. Move in your life. God is able to chase you down with grace. I love that. I love the psalm that says, surely goodness and mercy will what? Follow me all the days of my life. Wouldn't wouldn't it be great to look back over your life and say, you know, goodness and mercy and grace and love and joy, they have just followed me all the days of my life. I, I love this idea of the pursuing God. And God makes his favor abound to us. It literally is following after us. It is moving in us and moving with us. So the prospect of boundless divine favor is unquestioned. Unquestioned. That's the prospect. Secondly, I I want us to look at the proportions of boundless divine favor. Look at the proportions that this text outlines. Having all sufficiency in all things at all times. That's a pretty big, that's just a a, a pretty big envelope, isn't it? All sufficiency, all things, all times. What a magnificent promise. Having all sufficiency. I said we don't live like this, and and I I believe I, I speak the truth this morning. Not and I can tell you that not just from dealing with people in the culture, in in the Christian world or the Christian bubble in these days. It's also there in in all of our secular literature and secular studies. One of the early contestants on the show Survivor Africa, I think she was in the third season, a young gal, her name was Kelly Goldsmith, very smart, very smart young lady. She rolled out of Survivor. What was Survivor about? It was about living in a situation where you never have enough. And you're just, when you say, I'm just surviving, you're talking about having barely enough. And so this whole show about just enough and scarcity, it stirred something in her. She has now earned her PhD from Yale, her PhD, where she keys in on what she calls a scarcity mindset. She deals with the issues of enough and scarcity. She's built her entire her entire academic life as a PhD out of Yale around this whole idea of scarcity. And she says, we Americans live, this is not from a Christian viewpoint, she says in the culture, we're living with a sense of scarcity and that scarcity is not a reality, it's a perception that we have. A perception that we have. You say, well, pastor, I've, I've got a scarcity right now. You are well clothed. You probably came here in an automobile that most of the world cannot afford. There is absolutely no doubt that you are going to have, with the exception of maybe one or two that I can't number coming through the door, that your dietary needs are going to be met, not only today, but tomorrow, the next day. I'll give everyone here a fortnight. And yet we live with a sense there's just not enough. Just not, it's, a, it's, a, it's an American mindset. So Kelly Goldsmith did her PhD on this scarcity mindset. And she talks about two kinds of scarcity. So let, let's talk about those two types of scarcity for a moment. The first is objective scarcity. I'll just call that the real deal. 
the real deal. How would I, if it's objective scarcity, how would I define it? I would define it as 10 people on a desert island, no chance of rescue, one gallon of water, 95 degrees. That's objective scarcity. How many of you would agree with me right now that there's no world that you, there, there's just no, you, you cannot think in terms that would not leave you with a sense of this is the truth. Those people are in real trouble. Let me give you another one. There are 5,000 people on a hillside and all you have to feed them are five loaves and two fishes. Objective scarcity. It's real. It's not about feelings. It's about the facts. That's objective scarcity. Subjective scarcity is feeling like you don't have enough when you really do. It's feeling like you don't have enough when you really do. And she calls out, she calls Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram, she calls them the four horsemen of the subjective scarcity apocalypse. I would call them the lying four horsemen of the subjective scarcity apocalypse. In my opinion alone, that social media has become a malignant petri dish for viral social comparison. What we see on Facebook, on Instagram, what we see that people post about themselves, YouTubes and everything else, what we see is what they want us to see and most of the people out there do not want us to see them in reality or at their worst, they want to shape that reality. And so they're always posting themselves, making themselves look the best that they possibly can. Teenage girls, for some reason, have this need to post pictures of themselves looking like a kissing fish. <laughs> you see it everywhere. You know, I, and the ones, that, the ones that really get me are the, the guys and gals who stand in front of the mirror with their phone and go. <laughs> if, you never, if you ever have, you should feel just a little bit of red right now, rising up. We show people what we think is our very best, our very best. We are fed a steady diet through social media, a steady diet of lies about what life really looks like. And so if you are drawn into that world, it's not about keeping up with the Joneses down the block anymore. Now in the digital world, everybody's blogging or vlogging, YouTubing, boasting along the way. If it's new, expensive, exciting, exotic, we post it and we leave people with the impression everyone out there is doing better than you are. Doing better than you are. Go on a cruise, it's 30 pictures a day of absolutely the best. What they don't tell you is that husband and wife have fought like cats and dogs for four days on the cruise ship. I do not understand people who spend that kind of money to go on a vacation and just chew on one another. Man, Sherry and I were on the most hostile cruise. We took a cruise out of New Jersey. We never will again. It was the most hostile cruise we have ever taken. Half of that cruise ship hated one another. I, I, I just, I have no idea what was going on. But man, people were mean and nasty to one another. And I'm talking about the people who were married to one another. Man, we, you didn't have to wonder, I wonder how they get along. They just laid it all out there for you. They chewed one another up one side and down the other. It was, it was pretty ugly. But on social media, 
Look at our wonderful crews. Everybody's doing better than you are. So the new measure of enough is increasingly subjective. It's not based in truth. It's subjective. What is the fallout? Well, people who have enough at any given moment are living with a self-induced funk, believing themselves to be victimized or impoverished. People who are doing just fine have convinced themselves that they are the victims of scarcity. They don't have enough. They'll never have enough. It won't be enough. Perception is not reality. I, got, I was here early this morning and um, stepped, as I do every Sunday morning, over to the cafe at about 8.15 to have them do, uh, do an espresso drink for me and sat down at the table with Crystal, who does our art here at, at Calvary, and we were talking. Somehow it came up. She had taken, I think her mom had visited. She had taken her mom over to uh, the Battleground Park to see the museum that's there and then that beautiful park right here and just down the road here in, in Guilford County. Great place. And she was telling about you know, how impressed her mom was with that and we started talking about it and a memory came back to me. For three months, uh, our, selling our house and then our house being ready back in 1995 there was a three-month gap, and we found an apartment complex that was willing to rent us an apartment for 90, a 90-day 90 lease. And so we moved in the Bear Essentials, and we lived there for 90 days. But the, the apartment building was right on the battleground. And so you could literally walk through a strip of woods, and you were on the road that goes on the interior of the, of the battleground park, which was great for me. I was running marathon back then and always training, so I could get up early in the morning. I could walk through those trees, and then even in, in pitch darkness, I could, I could run in the middle of the road, could still see the yellow line on the middle of the road. I could run the middle of the road, and I could run no traffic. I could run all the way around the park and get the mileage in that I needed. I absolutely loved it. One day, a uh, day off on a Friday, I thought, well, I'm going to go over and I want to, I've never really been through their little museum over there. So I went over and man, they had, they had the greatest, they had films and, and, and you know, of, of the battles and then, you know, one display after the other. And I'm kind of a history guy. So man, I was totally into it. I discovered things like, you know, General Lee's father, Light Horse Harry Lee, read, led the cavalry charge that really helped to turn the battle over here at Guilford, at Guilford Courthouse. Light Horse Harry Lee, I didn't know anything about him. I started studying, and while I was there, I bought a book, another such battle. I bought a book about the battle because I was so kind of caught up in the whole thing. Here we are living in history. But for about three hours that afternoon, that Friday, and I immersed myself in the blood and the gore and the battle lines and the, you know, just the horror of war that had, had existed right there, out my back door. I was amazed by it. I saw the park in a whole new light. Everywhere I walked, it was like, oh, that's where that happened. And I, I kind of re-stepped, re, um, just kind of followed the steps, you know, and, and looked at everything with a fresh eye and understood where the lines of battle were. And I, I just, I was so caught up in it. And I fed my, I just fed my mind on this stuff that day, read the book cover to cover. Next morning, I get up to go out and run. And it was a pitch black morning with a heavy mist and there were only a few lights back there in the park and I don't know what happened I know spiritual man love God trust him absolutely but I got spooked <laughs> it was 
it got worse because I had decided that rather than run usual as I did counterclockwise, I thought, I'm going to run this thing clockwise, just get a different perspective on it. First time had done that. Got out there, kind of thought, oh, this is kind of eerie, man. This place is literally soaked in blood. And all those soldiers, and I had the imagery in my mind of those soldiers, you know, with the muskets and everything else. And so I, I ran for, from our apartment. I ran down over. I know I, it's as real as yesterday for me. I ran down over the hill, kind of hit the bottom, and then there's a hill that rises up. And I'd taken about eight steps up the hill, and I'm jogging, and all of a sudden, man, it's like my motor shut off. Everything shut down. I went stock still, just because at the top of the hill in front of me stood a soldier, looked like he had a big flowing cape on and a musket. I, I, I'm not ashamed to tell you, I was close to crying like a baby in that moment. <laughs> I, my heart rate went to 3,000, my temperature shot through the roof. I, I could feel, I could literally feel my my, you know, my, my jaw dropping. I'm standing there. And, you know, in moments like that, you, you go stupid. Your, your brain kind of shuts down to kind of a lizard level and, and found myself. So what am I going to do? So I, I did what it seemed brilliant at the time, but now I laugh about it. I did this. Hey. <laughs> And the guy didn't move. <laughs> Did it again. Hey! I decided that, I, <laughs> I decided that, all right, something, something's weird here, but I, I had to know. So this is the part of the horror movie where you just say, don't go, don't go, but I did. I start, you know, don't open that door, don't open. David opened the door. He starts up the hill, and I start, and the closer I get, the more real this thing looks. And so, I mean, I'm not just, I'm going to go find out what, the, I mean, I am, I'm walking and I'm looking and I threw in a couple more very intimidating, hey, you know what I mean? I just, uh, see, it, it works. It's a, it's a gift that I have. And so I'm on my way up the, the hill and the closer and closer I get, I start to see that maybe something's not quite right. When I finally get there, there is a large trimmed round bush, a square um, sign behind it, just behind it, with a branch that's fallen down this way. <laughs> that's what I did. I laughed. I laughed. I'm glad you're laughing with me and not at me. Yeah. Anybody here ever done anything like that? Man, I tell you, I, the hair was standing up on the back of my neck. It does all the time now, but back then that was really, that was really something, just standing right up there. So tell me again, perception is reality? I'm here to tell you right now that perception is not reality. Perception, more often than not, is completely inaccurate. It's completely inaccurate. And this idea, well, everybody is doing better than I am. Perception is not reality. You see, there is such a thing as truth. Now, what has the greater power to shape your perception? God's word or Twitter? It's a serious question. God's word, social media. God's word, Fox News. What has greater power to shape your perception? 
God's word? Is it the truth? Or is it just a skewed perception? What do you really believe about God's promise? What do you really believe about God's promise? Listen to Paul as he recites a prayer of benediction in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. Paul has had a prayer section here, and here's how he closes that prayer. It's triumphant. It's wonderful. I I absolutely love it. But listen to what he says. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. When I memorized that verse as a youth, I memorized it in the King James Version. And in the King James, we said, now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly. I love that. Exceedingly abundantly beyond all or above all we could ask or imagine. Imagine to him be glory in the church. Exceedingly abundantly. That's how the proportion of divine favor is described in the scripture. All sufficiency, all things, all times. And this power is at work within us. Well, how? We're going to come back to that. But this power is at work within us. Third thing we need to look at in the text is just the purpose. The purpose of boundless divine favor. And God is able to make all grace abound unto you so that at all times, or or with all sufficiency, in all things, at all times, purpose, you will abound in every good work. There is a purpose behind every blessing that God brings into our lives. God is not Santa. He doesn't come down the chimney with a ho, 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 eat your cookies, drink your milk, leave you gifts and things so that you'll just consume it all on your own pleasures. We ask not because we have not. We have not because we ask amiss that we might consume it on our selves, James says. So we often ask for all kinds of things, but we're really not grasping, you know, what is the purpose of God's favor being poured out in my life? It's being poured out in my life so that I might be a blessing. A blessing. Most of us want a blessing. We're not sure we want to be a blessing. Have you ever met people that you know they're probably going to heaven, but they are a pain in the neck? You would never say, that person is such a blessing in my life. You're careful to say, Jesus loves them. It takes Jesus to love them. (laughs) Maybe you're that person. You're miscast. You were called to be a blessing. You're supposed to put a smile on everybody else's face. Say, I don't need that pressure. You're called to be a blessing. God says, I'm going to pour my abounding grace, my favor, I'm going to pour it upon you so that it'll flow into you, through you, out the top of you. It will overflow you until you'll be a blessing to others. You will abound in every good work. See, the way God's blessing, or the way God causes blessing to flow to us is through us. 
The way he causes blessing to flow to us is through us. It flows through us. We're blessed on purpose. We have not been placed on the earth to be consumers. We're placed in the earth to be a conduit of blessing. There's a big difference between a consumer and a conduit. A consumer is the reservoir at the end with the big open mouth that just sucks up everything that comes through the pipe. The conduit is the delivery vehicle for God's blessing in the world. Are you called to be a consumer or called to be a conduit? You're called to be a conduit. You're called to be a blessing. Called to be a blessing. Listen to Paul. A few verses beyond that passage that, that we read, that the message is based on in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. If you go to 10 and following, listen to what Paul says as he expands on this. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way. <laughs> Here it is. Read the context. To be generous in every way. Which through us produce thanksgiving to God. You'll be enriched in every way so that you may be Generous in every way. Purpose. You just can't miss it. And if you don't understand the difference between consumer and, and conduit, you'll never know the fullness of God's blessing in you or through you. So you say, well, how, how then do we get to that place where we become the blessing, where we live not with this constant sense of subjective victimhood or this idea that I never have enough. How do we get to that point where we live within the boundaries of the text that Paul has given us? How do we get there? Let's talk then finally here about the pathway to boundless divine favor. The answer is already given in the context. We were talking about context. Paul writes the second, the second Corinthians passage to encourage generous giving. He said, you follow the Macedonian church who gave sacrificially even more than they could afford to. They gave. You follow their example and the rest of the needs will be taken care of. You be the giver first and the blessing will follow. Common theme, by the way, with Paul. We'll look at another text from Philippians 4.19. I said there was another one that we know so well. Many of you can quote Right along with me, and my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. You know that one? And my God shall supply all your need. That's on all kinds of um, posters that we put up, and we throw that around. We see somebody going through a hard time, say, oh, brother, just hang in there. The Bible says that God's going to, my God shall supply all of your needs. Sometimes we speak it to people like we're mad, thinking that that makes it more true. My God shall supply all of your need. Hey, if you want to encourage something, somebody, make sure that your face isn't rebuking them. I can't tell you. I've had people come to me and supposedly they were going to give me an encouraging word, but they were so intense and so intimidating, I didn't hear anything. I thought, this person has a problem and needs counseling. You say, well, you're not much of a man of faith. No, but I see things as they are. But I've heard people, they take these scriptures and say, don't you believe what the scripture says? It's a beautiful scripture. It's a be this is a beautiful truth. You need to accept this beautiful truth. My God shall supply all your need. Do you believe it? 
Whoa! Let's look at what the scripture says. Yes, my God shall supply all your need. It's largely treated as a blanket promise for Christians. Promise to supply all of our needs. We casually throw this promise about without any condition or any qualification. But Paul, who wrote, I remind you, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he wrote Corinthians and when he wrote Philippians, is always writing with condition. Here's the context of Philippians 4.19. 4.19 says, my God will supply all you need according to his riches and glory. Now, context, we go back to 4.14, and we read these words, 4.14 through 16. He says, yet it was kind of you. He's writing to Philippians. You Philippians, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs again and again. If you don't read that, and then you say, my God shall supply all your needs according to your writ, you miss the condition that sets the stage to open the door to step into the pathway of blessing. You have to be a participant, not just a recipient. A participant. And by the way, I'm not on a tithe drive right now. I'm not signing anybody up for anything. I'm not, I, I'm, this is not, this is not, you know, a, a stewardship Sunday where I've got a goal set that I'm trying to raise. I have absolutely no ulterior motive except to speak the truth about a principle that is keeping many of you living with a deep sense of lack rather than rest. Can we expect God's provision without living by God's conditions? Paul issues a resounding no. You can't. Got to toss aside all of these blanket promises that we throw out, out of context. Let me argue it from another point. I'm not a nutritionist. Nutritionist. I'm not, but I've bought a lot of diet books over the year. I really have. I have fought the same 35 pounds all my life. I almost want to give them a name because they keep moving in, then they move out, then they move in. They're like your children. They just keep coming home. It's like, go away. <laughs> Don't be insecure. I love you. I'm, I'm not a nutritionist, but I've bought a lot of diet books through the year. You know, I always feel great when I buy a diet book. I always feel great taking it down off the shelf, you know, thumbing through just a little bit, putting it under my arm, checking out. I always feel better just walking out there. I feel like I'm 50% lighter for buying the diet book. All I did was read the fly leaf and it looked pretty good. And, and I know there's going to be knowledge in there that I need that's going to turn the corner. And so, man, I'm, 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 I'm faith-based. So I go out the door and, man, my faith is, whoo, this is great. I've already got this thing. I've already got this thing knocked. Most serious diet plans, by the way, most serious diet plans work if you work them. Right? If you work them, that's the problem. Most of us want to be recipients and not participants. So should I expect to drop that troublesome 20 or 30 by 
merely studying the words of Atkins, Fung, Ramos, Pylon, Stevens, Schwartz, Diamond? Should I expect if I just read the words that I'm going to drop the pounds? What if I make myself the living compendium of Quito? The archive of Adkins. A man with a plan. Able to educate other people. Dieting. I will increase in knowledge and remain essentially unchanged. Increasing in knowledge, never coming to the truth. Increasing in knowledge, but never applying it. We are ever increasing in knowledge, but are we changed? Well, I'm amazed at how triggers work in the brain. If you ever had a memory come back that's been buried for four decades, but suddenly something triggers it and you hadn't thought about it, you could not remember the last time you even thought about it. And the more you begin to think on that memory that's been recalled, all of a sudden other doors start opening up in your mind. Happened for me this week. I Something in, in study, something triggered a memory, and I was absolutely amazed at what began to take place in my mind as these memories began to just uh, step out of the, that dark place. I visited my childhood 50 years ago. In first service, I said 40 years, and now I have to repent. It was, it was, five, de it was five decades if you would have ever told me that the day would, stand, it would come when I would stand up and say, I remember 50 years ago. <laughs> 50 years. I was seven or eight years old when I became involved and engrossed. Whatever I do, I do big. I got passionate about, this is just going to connect. If there's any nerds in the room, we're just going to have a moment together. I connected over stamp collecting. Stamp collecting. Did anyone hear letter in high school in stamp collecting? Didn't think so. Are there, any, are there any people in the room who would say, yeah, I was once really big into stamp collecting. Anyone out? A few. First service, there wasn't one soul who was daring enough to raise their hand. They're sitting out there going, no, you really are a nerd, Pastor. Man, I was into stamp collecting. I, I loved it. I, I loved it, but the memory was buried away. I don't know. I, I probably had not touched that memory in at least 40 years. It had been, you know, just kind of shoveled away into a corner of my mind and the door was closed. And, but when you begin to think about a memory like that, all of a sudden other doors start opening up. And man, before I, I was standing there, I was, I was partially amazed by what I was remembering. But more than that, I was amazed at the power of the mind, the power of this magnificent gift God has given us to store stuff away and how those memories, they spring to life. And I was taken back to being a little boy absolutely enamored with this whole idea that I was going to do, I was going to get a massive, I was going to do a complete stamp collection. It was going to be amazing. Now I got a three ring binder, the senior statesman stamp album, Christmas 1967 or 1968, somewhere in there. I got this stamp album and what a memory. As I was thinking about it, suddenly 
names started coming up out of my subconscious. The H.E. Harris Stamp Company. Why did I remember them? Because they produced the stamp albums, but they also were constantly putting out stamps that you could buy, stamps that they would send you in like a, a, an economy bundle bag, really junk stamps, but then they would send you stamps on approval to where you could look at them and say, do I want to spend money for that? You could send them back or you could keep them, all that. And if you didn't send them back, then you were charged for them. And, and I mean, I was totally into it. I remembered really wonderful moments where we didn't have a little hobby shop in St. John that, that had anything to do with stamp collecting, but where my grandparents lived 180 miles away in Bangor, Maine, down, at, uh, down on Union Street in Bangor, they had a little hobby shop and they had a whole section that was stamp collecting. And whenever we would visit my grandfather and grandmother, my mother or my father would take me over to that shop and I was in heaven for an hour. And, you know, I, I, I knew I can smell that shop. I can, you know, I, the, the, the creaky floors and all of that stuff from my childhood. It's all stored away and it all springs to life. The H.E. Harris Stamp Company, this little store in Bangor, begging my father, Dad, you have missionaries write you. Make sure that you hold on to their envelopes. I want to cut off and steam off the stamps. I got more stamps from missionaries. Problem is, the missionaries stayed there for long periods of time. I got to the point where I was praying that God would move them to another mission field because I was looking like, you know, man, Lord, we need, I'm, I was passionate. God, send missionaries to Spain. I don't have anything from Spain. But it's a true, true story. By the way, this, the memory was so vivid for me, I got on Google, typed everything in, and I came up with the picture, and man, it, it brought it all back to me. The Senior Statesman stamp album. That was mine, just like that. Three-ring binder, that thick. And you could paste those stamps in there, and I don't know why that was so great, but man, it was. Anyone here have the Statesman or the Senior Statesman stamp album at any point in time? Because I don't know, we either need to have coffee or, I, I don't know, we may share DNA or something. I'm, I'm not sure, but I'm looking. Not one of you. Not one of you. You're strange people. When I was thinking about all of these things, then I remembered a scheme. I remembered a scheme that floated around at that time in the stamp collecting circles. It was a chain letter scheme. And so I get this letter, and man, it sounds great. It's a chain letter. Here's the idea behind it. To increase everyone's stamp collection with stamps from all over the world, all you had to do is take that, that chain letter, take 10 stamps, either new or used ones, but 10 oddball stamps, you know, pull those aside, take the first name off the top of the chain letter, send them those stamps, copy the letter five times, send it to five other people, Cross the top name off, put your name on the bottom of those five letters that you send out, and here is the promise. Within a month, you would receive 152,560 stamps. And as a little boy, I can remember sitting there at the desk going, for hours on end, one, I imagined the postman coming to our house with an extra bag to carry all of the stamps that were going to come my way. I was, man, I was, I was pumped up. I was stoked. And you know, what do you need to introduce into that situation to just destroy the whole mystery and aura of it? An adult. 
And my father stepped in to help me understand that most of these things were scams and that every, if everybody didn't participate, then it would break down and that we were probably so far down the line in this thing that there's no way that it was going to produce anything. And, and so, you know, dad spoke wisdom into my life and I've never engaged in any chain letter stuff after that. But you see, if, it, if, if everybody had worked, if everybody had worked it, if everybody who got a letter sent out five letters, if, everybody's, if everybody did it, at least for a while, I would have been flooded with stamps. But I didn't send a letter. Whether the chain letter would have worked or not worked, was good or bad, had integrity or no integrity, did not matter when I determined I'm not sending a letter. I see this all the time in the church. I see people who are standing around waiting for their ship to come in and they've never sent a ship out. That ship that you're waiting to come in is still sitting at the dock. You never loaded it up and sent it out and so it's not bringing back it's not bringing back a harvest, but we wait because we read scripture out of context and expect Santa Claus to show up on the morning tide. We need to understand that when God talks about sufficiency and all sufficiency, all times, all things, having the fullness that we need, he offers that to people who will participate in obedience to the instruction in his word. That's where the blessing flows. If you don't participate, you're out of the game. The promise of boundless favor, it's not based on a mathematical formula like a chain letter. The promise of God's provision is based on the character of a covenant-making God. What if God is saying to us this morning, participate in my kingdom economy, be a conduit of blessing, and I will, Malachi, open the windows of heaven over you. This is the gospel, this is the Bible, this is the truth. If we want to walk in his blessing, we have to participate with him, fully participate. Have you had enough of not enough. Will you bow your heads with me? Speak to our hearts, Lord, that we would have integrity before you. Challenge us, O oh Lord, that we would question ourselves as we did last Sunday morning on whether or not we have established you as the divine priority in life. Challenge our hearts, Lord, as to whether we are willing to trust you before we trust in a credit card or a bank or a raise or a bonus. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would take the context that Paul establishes and drive it home to our hearts, that we would trust you absolutely and begin now to open the door that leads us in that path of full provision according to your word. Hear our hearts, I pray. 
Hear our hearts, I pray. There are a couple of things I'm going to ask you to do today. If you believe I have spoken truth to you this morning and you're pricked in your conscience or something stirs in your spirit, you have an opportunity right now to respond. This is one of two, and I'm not hard selling anything. But if God has spoken to your heart this morning, start right now. Say, Lord, I'm going to put you first in my life, either with cash or a check. But if you'll go out these doors and go to the East Lobby, in the far corner of the East Lobby, on this floor and on the second floor, there's a black box in the, in the wall that's there for people who give after offering time, who want to drop money at other times during the week. If you want to begin to put that into practice today, it's important that we act today. You've got your diet book. What day does your diet really begin? When does the blessing begin to flow? The day you begin to practice it, right? It may be, it may be that God has really stirred your heart in a different fashion, and I'm great with this, but if God has spoken to your heart or nudged you about someone who has a need, and you've resisted, you've kind of held back, be all in. If God the Holy Spirit has prompted you, be generous with them, or reach out, or try and help them, or go the second mile. Or if God has prompted you in any ways, then today, make the effort today to do that. Because it's only as you are a participant in God's economy that God's economy begins, begins to function in fullness in your life. Now. Our altars are open always for prayer. And I'll be here and I'll ask a couple of our elders if they would make themselves available if someone needs someone to pray with them or for them this morning. But I want you, I want you to ask yourself this one question before you leave the house. Am I a consumer or am I a conduit of God's blessing? And for this morning, it'll be enough. May God richly bless your life as you follow after him. If you need prayer, come. And as you leave this place, be a blessing to somebody. We're dismissed.